Thank you for downloading the Kol Hadash podcast. This episode was recorded live on May 15, 2011 as part of our Sunday School for Adults discussion series. Every other year, our 7th and 8th grade class study the history and explore modern Israel. Rabbi Shalom has one hour to provide context on American secular Jewish education that includes Israel as part of the curriculum. Israel in an hour, <laughs> which is a uh, daunting task, in particular because Israel is a very problematic topic for the American Jewish community at the moment. Uh, Forty years ago, it was much less divisive, but uh, today it's become very problematic. And the irony is, of course, that people will use the slogan that the um, uh, United Jewish Appeal used to use, we are one, we're united. There are things that join us together. Uh, God toward Israel is something that all Jews share. And I always laugh because nothing divides Jews like God, Torah, and Israel, in particular the last. You may have heard recently about a controversy involving the playwright Tony Kushner, who is set to receive an honorary doctorate from CUNY when one of the trustees uh, objected because of his uh, criticism of Israel in the past. Um, and they rescinded the degree, and then there was an uproar, and then they reinstated it, and now, <laughs> now the trustee is under fire for what he's done. And uh, it turns out he's a sort of mover and shaker in the New York real estate market, but he is a child of Holocaust survivors and has always been very committed to a strong defense of Israel. And um, it, it even comes up on very small levels. So, for example, my daughter brought home this little art project from kindergarten where they took a cutout of Israel and uh, decorated it. And it's uh, cute. You know, it may not have lasting artistic value, but it's, um, it's cute for kindergarten. But of course, the first thing I think of is, well, is this a politically accurate map? Because it includes the Golan Heights, and it includes the West Bank, and it includes the Gaza Strip. This is the greater Israel map of the Likud party, not necessarily the mm-hmm. um, negotiated settlement map that uh, others might like to see, or that the UN would recognize, because the West Bank, under UN uh, understanding, is uh, occupied territory, or um, uh, not necessarily Israel proper. So. It gets very complicated very quickly. Um, it's what a challenging. What did they tell the kids they were doing? What? What did they tell the kids that they were? Well, they talked in very general terms about Israel, and uh, that it's a place with which we have a close identification. Uh, they didn't get into the. I mean, this is kindergarten, first grade again. Right. They didn't get into the ramifications of war and peace and borders and settlements and refugees. No, this was here, our kindergarten here, oh, not, here. At, here. not at uh, not at regular school. school. No, our kindergarten. Uh, this is school too. It's not school, but it's school. No, I was thinking of terrorists. Okay. Um, in the last twelve months, there was a very interesting article in the New York Review of Books by Peter Beinart who was you know, an opinion maker and a pundit in general politics, but also he focused in this case on the American Jewish community. And he talked specifically about what he calls American Jewish disengagement from Israel. Um, there is a very minority movement. Uh, it gets a lot more attention than it has support numerically, called the Boycott Divestment Sanctions Movement, BDS, which is uh, people who want to uh, initiate boycotts of Israel and divestment um, from uh, companies that do business with Israel or are based in Israel, um, and uh, also imposing sanctions on Israel for its occupation of the uh, the West Bank, and uh, it gets again it gets a lot more attention than it uh, merits by numbers or by popular support. But in response to this, uh, Beinart pointed out that the the majority of American Jews are neither, at least the young Jews, are neither rabid pro-Israel supporters as their fathers or grandparents were. Um, nor are they really into divestment. They're really into disengagement. They're sort of disconnecting uh, because it's been an interminable war and conflict. It feels like a lot of Israel's political choices are in contrast with their own liberal convictions. And the uh, historical assumption had been that if Israel conflicted with one's liberal convictions, then Israel would win. It was a sort of a carve-out space where, well, they cut off some slack. Um, but what they found in recent generations is that, again, not across the board, but in many cases, um, the liberal convictions have won, and the disengagement, it's not a hostility to Israel, but it is a disengagement from less strong advocacy for or uh, defense of, uh, certainly on college campuses. Um, 
you know, the, the challenge is that um, we're living with a foot in both worlds, after all. We're humanistic Jews, so we feel an affinity to the Jewish people and certainly to the idea of a Jewish state. Uh, it's a place of six million Jews, and so you can't explore modern Jewish identity and history without talking about the Zionist movement, without talking about the idea of a Jewish peoplehood, which is a core part of our sense of Jewish identity, and certainly a place that houses now more Jews than any other country in the world. They've slowly bypassed America, uh, depending on how you count noses. Pardon the joke. Uh, <laughs> so it makes it challenging for us. At the same time, because we do have humanistic sympathy for uh, people who are dealing with um, less than full human rights, uh, and we certainly have high aspirations for our own people to live up to those values, um, that are uh, part of our a core of our uh, convictions. And there are powerful emotions on both sides, so it makes a rational dialogue very difficult. So you have on, on one side of the classical divide, um, APEC, which is the American Israel uh, Political Action Committee, I believe. Um, and they uh, are strong advocates for a strong Israel, and basically defending what Israel chooses to do. On the other side, there is J Street, which was founded a few years ago, which calls itself pro-Israel, pro-peace. So they're in favor of Israel being able to defend itself, uh, to not have to deal with rocket attacks from Gaza, or terrorist attacks, and so on, or militarism from the other surrounding countries. But at the same time, they want to use American power and encourage American power toward the side of a negotiated settlement, uh, two states for two peoples, and that, uh, that model. Whereas APAC takes a more agnostic position on that, saying whatever Israel decides to do for its own security will be Israel's choice. Um, and it gets very tense. You know, you get two people from different perspectives in the same room, and uh, it gets ugly. Um, in fact, you may have seen recently, uh, there was a news stink about the new rabbi who's been chosen to head the reform movement when the current head, Eric Yonfi, retires. His name is Rick Jacobs. He's a rabbi of a congregation in Connecticut. But he's also a member of the J Street Rabbinic Cabinet. Mm. And there was an ad taken out in the forward by a number of Reformed Jews saying he's too radical, he's too pro-Palestinian, there's no way he should be uh, the head of the Reform movement. Uh, so, it, it, again, it gets very personal. Um, but it also sometimes gets inflammatory. So I've noticed, uh, since I moved to Chicago, that there is the uh, Jewish United Fund's annual appeal, which is also called the Israel Emergency Campaign in letterhead, right? It's not like temporary. Oh, there's a temporary, there's always, it's always the Israel emergency campaign because it's always in a state of emergency. Despite the fact that Israel's economy is in the top 40 in the world for national GDP. You know, they are not the uh, kibbutznik farmers that are in desperate need of bullets, you know, cast from lead pipe. I mean, they're not in that stage anymore. Um, and so it's an interesting challenge of, you know, maintaining um, uh, aid and uh, support both politically and also financially. Um, Rand Paul, for example, the uh, libertarian senator from Kentucky, um, he uh, caught a lot of flack for saying we should cut our foreign aid, including our aid to Israel, because they're a first world country with a, with a substantial GDP. There's, it's not gonna happen. <laughs> but uh, he, uh, he got a lot of flack even for suggesting it as a way to bring the American fiscal house in order. So when you're exploring Israel, it's important to understand that it's not a monolithic institution. Uh, who is an Israeli? Let me give you some possible answers. An ultra-Orthodox Jew who's praying at the Western Wall. An Israeli army general born in Morocco who is fluent in Arabic. A nanotechnology entrepreneur who is texting on his iPhone in Tel Aviv. A Bedouin shepherd in the Negev Desert. A Russian-speaking shopper looking for pork chops at the Russian-signed butcher shop. An Arab restaurant owner in Abu Ghosh, which is a small village outside of Jerusalem. And an American university professor who is teaching at the Technion uh, Science College in Haifa. Of course, they're all Israeli, but they're all very different Israelis with different political perspectives, different uh, religious perspectives. Um, different understandings of uh, what a Jewish state means. Um, but after all, you could ask the same question, who is an American? And despite some people's uh, discomfort with the subject, you would get a very diverse answer today. Um, that uh, who looks like an American is not who used to look like an American. Uh, and I didn't even mention, by the way, the old model of the kibbutznik, you know, the agricultural farmer who also fights to defend his land and uh, who dances and sings and 
is well-rooted in where he's from. Well, that model is still there also. There are still kibbutzniks, but uh, kibbutzim have uh, had to change their tune because you can't make a living farming uh, unless you're in, in sort of an industrial-scale uh, farming system. Uh, Israel also has a real disability when it comes to farming because they can't export to their nearest neighbors mm -hmm. because they're in a state of hostility with most of them. <laughs> they actually make their money exporting food to Europe because it ripens in Israel a few weeks before the crops in Europe ripen. Um, but kibbutzim have become printing presses, they've become tourist locations, guest hostels, in some cases, even cemeteries, because they'll bury anyone with anyone, as opposed to the state cemeteries, which are run by the Orthodox rabbinate. And so if your Jewish identity isn't clear, you can't even get buried in a state Jewish cemetery. Now, Israel didn't spring out of nowhere. You know, it wasn't let there be Israel, and then it showed up. Uh, the Zionist movement itself, which led to the creation of the modern state, began in the late 19th century in response to two great disappointments. The first was, in 1881 and 1882, there were a series of very violent pogroms against Jews in the Russian Empire after the assassination of the Tsar. And before this time, uh, Jewish socialists and people who were sort of on the radical side of politics in Russia felt like uh, the solution to the Jewish situation would be to become part of the Russian society. Uh, they would overthrow the Tsar, change society, change the system of production. Uh, again, this is the heyday of uh, Marx and Engels. Um, and they would uh, solve the problem of Jewish oppression by solving the problem of all oppression. Right? Two for one. <laughs> well, what happened in 1881, 1882 was during these pogroms, a number of Russian socialists applauded them and said, look, they're striking back at the oppressing bourgeoisie. Or, look, the masses can be rallied for a cause. And the Jews said, are you kidding me? That's my Bubby. I mean, that's, you know, this is the shuttle I came from. These are, these are my people, and you're supporting these anti-Semitic riots, which are, by the way, being sponsored by the secret police. These are not the masses against the authorities. It's the authorities distracting the masses. Well, so that was a major disappointment. And a number of people who had been involved in Russian socialism became very sympathetic to a uh, Jewish national movement because they realized that their oppression wasn't basically religious and wasn't even political. It was an ethnic oppression. And the solution to ethnic oppression might well be an ethnic nation. This is also the period, by the way, of the rise of other ethnic nationalism, Serbian nationalism. Um, the Austro-Hungarian Empire is being torn by, um, by nationalist uh, fervor. Uh, in the aftermath of the Second World War, uh, First World War, you have the emergence of Poland, you have the emergence of uh, Czechoslovakia, all these other nations are being developed at the time. Ukrainian gets written down as a language. It had been spoken for many generations, of course, but it hadn't been written. It was a peasant language. Now it becomes the idea of perhaps a national language. Same thing in the Baltic states and so on. So uh, Jewish nationalism fit into this philosophy of a 19th century ethnic nationalism. The second major disappointment took place not in Eastern Europe, but in Western Europe, where in 1894, a French uh, officer named Captain Alfred Dreyfus is accused of treason in the aftermath of a, um, of a uh, uh, defeat by the French, uh, of the French army by the Germans, or the Prussian army, in uh, the 1870 war, uh, and the loss of Alsace-Lorraine, which was a, a valuable industrial province. So Dreyfus is accused, based on forged evidence. He's sentenced to Devil's Island. But during the trial, um, a lot of anti-Semitic uh, rhetoric comes out. Uh, in particular, after the trial, uh, some of the details of the framed evidence begin to be, uh, begun to be questioned and become clear. And in the battle between the pro-Dreyfusards and the anti-Dreyfusards, takes on very anti-Semitic tones. Um, those in favor of the establishment, restoring the monarchy, the Catholic Church are all anti-Dreyfus. The liberal progressive elements are pro-Dreyfus, so they're accused of being pro-Jewish, and it gets very ugly. But witnessing all of this is a journalist from Vienna, one of the heartlands of Western European culture, whose name is Theodor Herzl. He comes from a very assimilated background, may not have known Hebrew, probably never had a bar mitzvah, but felt ethnically Jewish. He was part of a Jewish fraternity in college and um, had uh, written for uh, a non-Jewish uh, German press, but was certainly aware of Jewish concerns. And he realized, from his perspective, that there was no solution in Western Europe. If in the home of the Enlightenment, in the home of the French Revolution, we were still not welcome, then maybe there is no way for us to fully assimilate into Western society, and better that we acknowledge the reality that we are a nation that's unassimilable, we're a rock in the soup that isn't going to dissolve, and uh, we might as well simply move on 
uh, and find our own state. And in fact, they'll be willing to help us because we'll get out of their way. We won't be an irritation for them anymore, and we can die peacefully in our own homes, as he wrote in his book, The Jewish State, which came out in 1896. Now again, Herzl wasn't the first one to come up with this idea of a Jewish state. In 1882, a man named Leo Pinsker wrote a book called Auto-Emancipation. You can hear in the title, Free Yourself. Right? Don't wait to be free, free yourself. Um, encouraging a creation of a Jewish state and a move to the land of Israel. Um, the early movement called the Bilu Movement, which stood for Beit Yaakov, Lechu, Nelcha, House of Jacob, Get Up and Move. Um, or get up and go, basically, uh, was encouraging people to move uh, to Israel. But they were very small. And it wasn't until uh, the end of the 19th century and the founding of the uh, World Zionist Congress in Basel, Switzerland in 1897 that you really get a momentum going to try and create a Jewish state. And there are a couple of different schools of thought. One is called political Zionism. It wants to get a mandate from the great powers to create a state. And so Herzl tries to meet with the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire, which at the time is in control of the land of Israel, and doesn't go very far. And he meets with the Kaiser, and it doesn't go very far. And he talks to the British Foreign Office, and at one time he's offered East Africa, also known as Uganda, as a possible home for the Jews. And he says, let's explore it. And the World Tennis Congress says, are you Meshuggah? <laughs> are you crazy? Uh, because it's Zionism from Mount Zion, not Ugandism. <laughs> not going to work. Uh, his perspective was, if we need a sanctuary for the oppressed masses in Eastern Europe, let's take a sanctuary. Their response was, Zion or bust. Herzl dies in the first decade of the 20th century. Uh, he predicts that within 50 years there'll be a Jewish state. As it turns out, he's right. Uh, one of the major breakthroughs takes place during the First World War. It's called the Balfour Declaration, after Lord Balfour, who was the head of the Foreign Office of the British Empire. This is just after Allenby has conquered Jerusalem um, with the help of T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia, if you remember the movie. Um, and there's a lot of agitation of what's going to happen to this territory. Now, the land has been promised a few different times. Of course, famously in, in the movie Lawrence of Arabia, it's promised to Prince Faisal that he will have a great Arab state. It's also split up between the British and the French into spheres of influence under a treaty called the Sykes-Picot Treaty. And then the third promise is the Balfour Declaration. But the wording is very important. Um, one of the theories is that actually the British Foreign Office was influenced by anti-Semitic ideas that the Jews controlled America. And if they gave the Jews a Jewish state or some promise of this, it would encourage America to enter the war on the side of the, uh, the uh, Allies. So interesting uh, theory. In any case, the original wording of the Balfour Declaration said, His Majesty's government looks with favor on the establishment of Palestine as the national Jewish home. But the final wording as it was issued was His Majesty's government looks with favor on the establishment in Palestine of a national Jewish home. So those little prepositions make a big difference because establishment of Palestine as the national Jewish home means the entire territory. And that's why in some of the earliest um, uh, right-wing Zionist uh, maps of Israel, they included what is today the Kingdom of Jordan because that was part of historic Palestine in the Ottoman divisions, it was split off in the 1920s to give Faisal some kind of kingdom, uh, which is how the uh, ruling house of Jordan is not native to uh, the land. In fact, the majority of the population uh, is not uh, is Bedouin uh, or Palestinian and not um, of the same ethnic background as the, uh, the ruling house, at least the same clan or tribe. In any case, um, so that change from the establishment of Palestine as the national Jewish home to in Palestine of a national Jewish home means that you get part of it, but it's not quite clear where and what. But this is the peak of political Zionism because they get a mandate from a great power. It's authorized by the League of Nations after the First World War, and uh, the League of Nations gives the British a mandate to be in charge of Palestine. Now, the other side of Zionism was what was called practical Zionism, which is don't wait for permission. Go, move, do, build, set down roots. You want to create a new Jewish state? We need a new Jewish language. It can be the old Jewish language, but we need to modernize it. So someone writes a dictionary for all those new words like electricity <laughs> and train. Um, he often uses old words like rechev is a chariot, so rakevet becomes a train. Or chashmal is a, appears in the book of Ezekiel as the beautiful light that surrounds Ezekiel's chariot, but it's not quite clear what it is. 
So uh, the, uh, the creator of the modern Hebrew dictionary, Eliezer ben Yehuda, called that electricity. So evidently, uh, um, Ezekiel had a solar-powered chariot, <laughs> or at least some kind of battery. We don't know exactly. Hybrid plug-in. You know, the green. It's not clear. Is it very right? It was a green chariot. Of course, electricity grows on trees, you know. <laughs> That's free. Okay. Um, so in any case, that was part of the process of creating a new language. But mostly, it was just getting people to inspired to move there and to settle there. Uh, this is the beginning of the kibbutz movement and the collective farm settlement, which again comes out of that socialist background I, I alluded to in the uh, late 19th century. Um, but also, uh, if you saw the film uh, The Last Station about the last days of Tolstoy, um, the idea of communitarianism and living in a collective farm is in the air in, uh, in Eastern Europe at the time. Um, practical Zionists also uh, begin the process of acquiring land. Uh, the Jewish National Fund is set up to buy land for Jewish use in, uh, in the land of Israel. And part of his charter is that the land can only be leased or uh, sold to Jewish entities or to the state, ultimately. Uh, today it's become an issue in the state of Israel in terms of land use because the Jewish National Fund owns a fair amount of land. Um, and by having a charter that only allows it to lease to Jews, uh, some have questioned the democratic uh, standing of that, uh, that kind of a system. On the other hand, they're chartered with creating a Jewish state. And so it's part of their mission. Uh, again, you can see how you can have arguments on both sides. Now, the practical Zionists um, became the dominant voice in the World Zionist Organization by the 1920s. Uh, their emblematic leader was a man named uh, David Ben-Gurion. Um, but it wasn't only a matter of practical uh, steps. There were also some ideological underpinnings to the movement. One was that um, anti-Semitism was not going to go away. That the more you assimilate, the more they're not going to like us. So you can see how the Zionist movement ran up against the reform movement, which, whose model was, let's modernize Jewish life, let's become just like our neighbors, let's speak the non-Jewish language. Uh, we can certainly maintain a separate Jewish identity, but we are Germans of the Mosaic faith. We are as German as anybody else. We are as American as everybody else. This is our Jerusalem, said American Jews, or American reform Jews. In fact, the uh, first reform prayer book translated into English in America was called Minhag America the custom of America, the practice of America, because this is where we're going to be. So the reform movement was opposed to Zionism in its early stages. Of course, this is also challenging to the traditional Orthodox world for a variety of reasons. One is you're not supposed to force the Messiah. You're supposed to wait. You're supposed to say at Passover, Bim hey rab and the soon in our days, please rebuild the temple, please, 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 but you don't do something. Next year in Jerusalem, you hope you don't book a trip. <laughs> you don't sell your house. Except some people did at the end of their life. They would move there to study or to die there. But it wasn't a sense that we're all going to go there. That's, that's the Messiah time. That's not our time. And in particular, the Zionist movement went beyond simply um, saying, let's move. It wanted to create a secular Jewish nation with an ideal of what they call the new Jew as opposed to the old Jew. Who is the new Jew? The new Jew was self-assertive, not passive. The new Jew was modern, like all other nations, not separate, distinct, old, traditional, backwards. The new Jew was creative and productive, farming the lands, making something with his own hands. The old Jew was a handler, a dealer in secondhand stuff, uh, focused more on study than on actually working for a living or doing any productive work. The new Jew was young and strong and, um, well, virile, let's say. But the old Jew, what was the ideal? It was the old scholar, bent over glasses, long beard, bent over a book, not standing up straight. So you can see the contrast there. And of course, the Orthodox Jewish world also was very opposed to a Zionist movement. There was the beginning of a religious Zionist movement where they they tried to say, well, even though the organizers of the Zionist movement are all heretics and traith and non-kosher Jews, um, nevertheless, maybe the purpose of the Messiah can be served by this. Um, this becomes the core of what today is the religious settler movement, also called religious Zionist movements. They have their own political parties, and a number of the uh, religiously motivated settlements in the West Bank come from this background. Of course, even the settlements are not all religious. Um, a lot of people moved there simply because it was affordable. Want a chance for to buy your own house? You know, it's like people who move out to Mudderline because they can't afford to buy in Glencoe. 
Um, that's that's the economics of the situation. And at the time in the 70s and 80s, when a lot of Russian Jews were moving to Israel, the government sponsored uh, people to live in settlements with uh, cheap housing. So that's why they moved there. And surveys have consistently shown that good numbers of settlers would leave if they were compensated for their homes. And they got an equivalent home back in, the, in Israel proper. So the religious hardcore is still a minority, even among the settlers. Now, even within the secular side of Zionism, of course, there were divisions. At one time, there was a party called Labor Zionist A and another one called Labor Zionist B. They both supported the idea of a left-wing socialist-oriented Zionism, but one was pro-Soviet and one was anti-Soviet. Um, you know, one was socialist, but democratic socialist, and one was socialist communist. Um, but there was also a group called the Revisionist Movement, which became the forerunner of today's Likud party. A secular party, but interested in a maximalist Jewish state, uh, interested in a more capitalist society than a socialist, and uh, certainly a supporter of the strong Jew fighting back and uh, not taking any guff from anyone. Now, what I wanted to do to talk through the development of the state itself is take a look at some numbers. And we're not going to get you know, uh, glazed eyes and looking at these. But these are some examples of this diversity of Jewish population, but also how the state grew based on a couple of snapshots of, uh, of time. So in 1881, in that year of the, uh, the first great disappointment of the pogroms in Eastern Europe, you can see the population of the land. Arabs are about 440,000, Jews about 25,000. So the Jews are a very, very small percentage. By 1900, the Jewish population has doubled, which is impressive. Mm -hmm. But the Arab population has also grown. Natural population increase, uh, migration of people. And by the way, all of the Jewish arrival and investment with outside capital is developing the economy. As much as the ideal was for Jews to build themselves or do it themselves, you know, the, the, the redemption of productive labor, uh, nevertheless, they also did employ Arabs in other uh, circumstances. By 1922, when you have the, the beginning of this practical Zionist movement taking over, again, the population has gone up almost 50% again uh, to 84,000. But again, the Arab population has also gone up. This is also the period of the British mandate. One of the things the British tend to do when they take over a territory is they build. They build roads, they build bridges, they build railroads. This requires labor. And so uh, thousands of Arabs moved into uh, what has historically been Palestine. Um, to, uh, to work uh, under the British Band-Aid and uh, also, of course, improves hygiene, improves birth rates and uh, death rates, infant death rates and so on, so the population grows. So again, even as the Jewish population grows, the Arab population also grew. Now, by 1941, you have the pre-World War I wave of immigrants, which included people like Golda Meir, David Ben-Gurion, the really socialist-motivated kibbutznik model. You also have the beginnings of refugees from Hitler and from the Great Depression. In fact, the irony is that you've got a lot more Jews moving to Israel because of the Great Depression and the desire to get out of Poland, where they were miserable and oppressed, or the oppression of Hitler and their desire to get out of Germany and Austria um, than you did from the positive motivation of socialist Zionism. You know, all those millions of Jews in Eastern Europe, some of them were able to come, but some of them didn't. And of course, the Soviet Union also clamped down on their ability to leave or to promote Zionism within that territory. In fact, Stalin himself created a Jewish state in eastern Siberia and encouraged people to move there as competition with Zionism, but didn't work because it was still Siberia. So by 1941, shortly before the, uh, the founding of the state, now you see the Jewish population is a substantial portion of the overall population of this territory. Uh, out of 1.6 million, there are 470,000, so you know a quarter. Uh, that's uh, not insignificant compared to what it used to be, uh, but still, again, not the majority. So what happens between 1941 and 1967? A lot. <laughs> um, after 1948, uh, first of all, after the, first, after the Second World War, there are all sorts of refugees from Europe who are trying to make their way in. The British are stopping them. This is the famous story of the Exodus. You can read the book or watch the movie uh, if you want a, a dramatic version of it. You know, nothing says uh, Jewish-Israeli like the blonde-haired, blue-eyed Paul Newman. <laughs> but in any case. Um, <laughs> It's a, it's, a very, it's a very interesting movie. I've actually used it in, uh, in Sunday school settings uh, because it talks about the religious perspective. It talks about the revisionist versus the labor party. And you see kibbutzniks, you see the old world, you see the new world, you see the post-Holocaust mentality. I mean, it really is a very interesting 
exploration of the period. Um, but after 48, when the state is formed, now a whole new wave of Jews begins to immigrate. This you can see in the proportion of Jews that are Mizrahi Jews or Sephardic Jews, if you look at the Jewish ethnicities in Israel chart. Uh, and they came in different ways. Initially, it was Iraqi Jews and Yemeni Jews who came in the first three or four years of the state, almost doubling the state in that time frame. I mean, you can imagine a state just being formed out of a very destructive war of independence, now having to assimilate and to manage uh, logistically an entire doubling of the population. Um, and these Jews were also uh, less exposed to uh, Western models and mores. Now, it's not to say they were not unexposed to it. Many of them had gone to schools called the Alliance Israelite schools, which were sponsored by French Jews. They had learned French or other Western languages, had some familiarity with Western culture. In some cases, from the, uh, the Yemeni Jews had almost none, and they were very, quote, backwards. Um, but they came with their own traditions that weren't Yiddish-inflected, as the Eastern European Jews were. Um, even if they didn't want to speak Yiddish, they still sounded like it. Um, and it's, uh, it's an interesting challenge of how the state managed to assimilate them. But by today, you can see that fully 50% of the Israeli Jewish population are Sephardic or Mizrahi Jews. Um, again, the largest number is from Morocco. Uh, they started coming in the 50s and 60s, uh, later than the uh, Iraqi Jews. Uh, but again, the Iraqi Jews represent a very substantial percentage. Now, interestingly enough, in this statistical list, there isn't an example of mixed, which is increasingly the case in Israel. Because after your parents have been there for 30 years or 40 years, those old lines don't make as much of a difference. It used to be a big case in America, for example. If you were a Litvak or a northern Polish uh, Jew who was marrying a Galician or a southern Polish Jew, because they speak their Yiddish differently, they eat their gefilte fish differently, the Litvaks are too snooty and too intellectual, and the Galicianos are too emotional and too irrational, and, the, and all these stereotypes are back and forth. Um, and, uh, you know, people make those divisions as if they're a big deal, but in fact, uh, I'll tell you an interesting anecdote. In the original words of Baimir Bis Duchesne, uh, when it was originally written in Yiddish, before it was sung by the Andrews sisters, um, <laughs> one of the lines in the song was, I'm a Galicianer and you're a Litvak, but who cares? <laughs> Nowadays, people would say, what's a glitva? <laughs> I mean, the whole category is, is lost. My parents used to speak disparagingly of the Galicianos. Right. Yeah, like, oh, he's a Galiciano, what'd you expect? Right. And they never understood why. Right. Yeah. And so these differences have gone, I mean, and you used to have the Hungarian synagogue and the Romanian synagogue and the Bavarian synagogue because they all came from that area and, you know, this is the one I won't set foot in, right? Uh, of course, today they've all merged. Um, in Detroit, actually, there's a funny story because there were three synagogues. There was Beth Abraham, uh, which I think was Hungarian. There was Beth Hillel, which was Romanian, and there was Beth Moses. Um, but then they merged over time. Uh, so now they became Beth Abraham, Hillel, Moses, also known as Beth and the Boys. Um, <laughs> but they since have shortened their name to Beth Am, A-H-M, which stands for Abraham, Hillel, Moses. Now, in any case, um, that's, that's the irrelevancy of those differences. So in Israel, you are getting a new kind of ethnicity called Israeli, where you're half from this side and part from this side, and you're doing things your own way. And there's some resistance to that. There was a case just a couple of years ago of a, a, an ultra-Orthodox Ashkenazi school that was discriminating against Sephardi students to participate in the school. And these are both in the ultra-Orthodox community, right? It's not like they're even separated on the, the kosher standards, but uh, still the, the tensions exist. Uh, now, after 67, of course, the major change is uh, the success of Israeli armies in the Six-Day War, conquering uh, not only the Sinai Peninsula, which they ultimately would give back, but also the Gaza Strip, from which uh, Israel finally withdrew in um, uh, 2004, I believe, or 2005, um, and then uh, also the West Bank and the Golan Heights from Syria, the West Bank from Jordan, the Golan Heights from Syria. And in doing so, they acquired millions more of Arab population. So you can see, for example, in the way that the numbers are broken out at the top of the page, in 1967, you had 2.4 million Jews. Again, the population in only 26 years has gone up five times, six times. I mean, again, a massive rate of immigration and also a high birth rate, low infant death rate, it uh, produces that way. The Arab population has gone down of the core uh, pre-Six-Day uh, pre War Israel. 
um, from 1.1 million now down to 393 million, uh, 393,000. But including the territories, the population is 1.3 million. Now again, that includes those Arabs who are in the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, but not the Palestinians who were in refugee camps in Lebanon, in Syria, in Egypt proper, or in Jordan, uh, who also have a, a claim to uh, land and, uh, and rights. Now, in 1983, again, you have another generation's worth of development. Um, no more territorial acquisitions, uh, but again, more immigration from Morocco and North Africa. Uh, you also have the beginning of the Russian Jewish immigration in the first fits and starts, which will, of course, accelerate uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union. So the Jewish population goes up by a million, again, in only 16 years, very high rate of increase. Uh, but the Arab population doubles almost, well, uh, 40, uh, 80% uh, goes up. And uh, so the overall population of the country has gone up, but the population in the territories has also gone up tremendously. Um, again, uh, improved hygiene and so on helps. Um, and uh, people aren't fleeing in the way that they did uh, in 67 or before, they're staying there. This is shortly before the first intifada in uh, 87. And now by the year 2000, close to modern times, uh, the Jewish population is close to 5 million. Today it's, I think, even close to 5.5 or 6 million. Um, the Arab population also is over a million, so it represents something like 20%, uh, 18% of the uh, population. So that would be like the Hispanic population in this country, which is now, I think, 17%, um, or the Hispanic plus the East Asian population. <coughs> You know, add those two together and the influence they have in society, and you can imagine the Arab status in Israel, except it's not quite that simple. Mm -hmm. Today, Israel is approximately 75% Jewish, 20% Arab, and 5% other, Armenian or other variety of uh, Druze. Now, the challenge is that they don't always live together. They live in the same country, but they don't live together. I mean, in Chicago, or if you go to Gary, you're familiar with the phenomenon of living in the same municipality, but not... Uh, living together. Uh, the same is true certainly in Israel uh, because Arabs tend to live in Arab villages and Jews tend to live in Jewish areas. Uh, they tend to work in very different industries um, and walks of life. In some cases, uh, jobs are held open for army veterans, which is code, um, mm -hmm. because the Arabs tend not to serve in the army. They're not drafted. Uh, the Druze have chosen, the Jews, which is an Arab minority sect, have chosen to serve in the Israeli army. Uh, so they would be eligible for those jobs, but by and large, the large majority of the army are Israeli Jews. So by saying a job is for armed veterans, uh, again, it's uh, restricting in some ways. Um, and uh, they're educated in different school systems. There's Arab language schools and there's Hebrew language schools. And the Arabs are learning Hebrew in the school from the very beginning. Um, the Jews are learning Arabic a little bit later in school. Uh, they're not expected to be as fluent in Arabic as Arabs are expected to be fluent in Hebrew. Uh, this is the challenge of having, you know, multiple national languages. Officially, Israel has three national languages, English, Arabic, and Hebrew. They're official national languages. You can do government business in any of those languages. All the street, uh, the major highway signs, not all the street signs, but all the highway signs are in Arabic and Hebrew and in English. Um, of course, it's not always the case that this uh, is carried through everywhere. I remember getting a tourist map once that had the Jewish parts of Jerusalem with the streets marked. And the Arab parts of Jerusalem had no streets marked. And I was intrigued because the, the sentiment was, who would go there? You don't need to know what, what to find. There's, there's nothing there for it. Because this, this was a map marketed to uh, Western, certainly uh, to Jewish uh, tourists. Um, so even though it's 20% Arab, your experience as a Jewish tourist or as an Israeli Jew is probably 90% Jewish, 95% Jewish. It's a very different uh, than just the, the, uh, the, the integrated setting we might imagine. Um, of the Jews who live in Israel, 70% were born there, 20% were immigrants from Europe or the Americas, and 10% from Asia or Africa. Again, the large majority of uh, so-called Arab Jews or Jews from Arab countries have already moved to Israel, they're already there. Um, and uh, the median age in Israel is 29, by comparison, in the U.S., it's 36, so they're a substantially younger society. Um, they do have universal army service, uh, except for the Arabs and the ultra-Orthodox. Again, you know, you can live in Tel Aviv and imagine there are no ultra-Orthodox Jews or Arabs because it's a city of a million only Jews, or almost, almost exclusively. 
Now, when it comes to religious questions, you know, people think of Israel from a religious perspective. The irony is, of course, that large numbers of Jews are not that religious. Um, of the Arabs in Israel, 80% of them are Sunni Muslim, 10% are Druze, and 10% are Christian. Um, in fact, uh, one of the challenges that the Palestinian Authority is dealing with now, particularly in Gaza, is how Christians are being treated under Palestinian Muslim law. Uh, technically, Fatah is a secular party, but Hamas has sort of cornered the market on Islamic rhetoric and references, so Fatah has moved in that direction, which makes it uh, harder for Christians to find a space. When it was a secular party, Christians love secular Palestinian nationalism because it's open to them. Just look at what happened in Egypt. The cops were supportive of creating a state as long as it's secular. In fact, they were supportive of Mubarak because of their fear of the Muslim Brotherhood. And in the aftermath of the fall of Mubarak and his party, there was a riot recently um, in Cairo uh, where a number of cops were uh, attacked in a Coptic apartment building. And so the inter-religious tensions are rising there. Now, if you take a look on the back of this green sheet, you get what has been a relatively consistent number of how Jews in Israel tend to identify in terms of their religious identity. 8% would call themselves Haredi, or ultra-Orthodox. 13% would call themselves traditional religious, and that might well include um, the religious Zionists who support the idea of the state and serve in the army, unlike the ultra-Orthodox who tend to refuse. There's religious, which is slightly less traditional than traditional religious. There's traditional not very religious. So what does that mean? If they go to synagogue, they're going to go to an Orthodox one. They like candles most Fridays. Do they get in their car on Saturday? Yeah. So they're traditional, but not all the way down the line. If they do a Seder, it's a traditional Haggadah. They're not going to use a modern one. But uh, you know, they're a little more flexible in some other areas. But fully 42% of the population would say that they, would, that they are secular. Now, what they mean by secular is not necessarily what we mean by secular. For us, when we refer to secular humanistic Judaism, we mean secular in the philosophic sense, that we're focused on this world, uh, that we are non-supernatural. Some people in the secular camp in Israel would fit in that category. They are uh, humanists by that, by that definition. But in many cases, they define secular as not institutional or not following religious law. Because for them, dati, religious, is following religious law. And if you're not dati, then you're everything else. So reform Jews would be called secular in Israel because they're not following religious law. They're not following the kosher laws. They're not obeying the Shabbat all the way. Well, OK, so again, Reformed Jews here would very strongly object to being called secular. Uh, I've seen it in print in, uh, in dialogue. Um, but in Israel, that's the category that they would fit in for this breakdown. And for all the claims that the, the Orthodox Jewish world is more meaningful, people are joining it in droves. In fact, the survey shows that 21% said they're more religious than they were in the past. And 14% said they're less religious than they were in the past. So there's movement in both directions. Now, what does it mean to be a secular Jew in Israel? Well, we have some examples. Do they attend synagogue on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, or both? Well, about a quarter of them do. And again, most of them are going to be going to an Orthodox synagogue. Uh, but a number of them, again, Reformed Jews would fit into that category. Do they fast in Yom Kippur? About a quarter. Do they build a sukkah? Hmm. Small percentage. Do they hold a Passover say? Very high. Do they like Hanukkah candles? Very, well, that's very much like American Jewish behavior. Mm -hmm. We follow the same kind of pattern. Why? Because they're once in a while. They're home and family. Doesn't cost very much. <laughs> Don't have to join an institution. Uh, there's all kinds of easy uh, answers to that. But even lighting Shabbat candles is higher than some of the other ones, but very low. Keeping kosher over the year, only 10%. But again, we would say it's odd. 10% of secular Jews keeping kosher, but that's their definition of secular is not part of the institution, not following all the laws. But notice that twice as many follow the Passover kosher laws as follow the regular kosher laws. This is the irony of uh, at the McDonald's in Haifa where you can get a cheeseburger on matzah during Passover. <laughs> because the cheeseburger they don't care about, but the matzah, that's seasonal. Okay. <laughs> I don't think so. I, I knew a lot of people in college that, that the only time they kept kosher was during Passover. Right. Is it good? 
It's probably It's matzo. Cheeseburger tastes good. Yeah. <laughs> now, on the issue of religion and state, of course, um, there are a lot of battles going on in Israel. I can only mention a few of them. Um, there was a case recently of a woman who dared to bring a Torah scroll to the Western Wall. Uh, she's actually one of the first Israeli, orda- Israeli women ordained as a rabbi, as a reform rabbi. Uh, she was arrested because how dare a woman bring a Torah scroll to the wall? Because the major national shrines are run by the chief rabbinate. You see, there's a chief rabbinate in Israel. In America, there's no chief rabbinate. I mean, a rabbi can claim to be a chief rabbi, can act like he or she is a chief rabbi, but there is no chief rabbinate that can enforce its rules. In Israel, on the other hand, there is a chief rabbinate. They're in charge of conversions. They're in charge of the marriage laws. They're in charge of the national religious shrines. They're in charge of the public square and the cemeteries. So they can tell you you can't get buried here because your mother wasn't Jewish. Or because we didn't, we don't buy your conversion. Or we don't buy your mother's conversion. They can tell you, you have to wear a yarmulke going to the Western Wall, if you're a man. Or women have to dress modestly to be able to get to the wall. Uh, they can't carry a tourist scroll because it's violating traditional Orthodox practices. And so on and so on. They have their own police? No. They can use the police. So the, the city police have to listen to the rabbi? Yes. That's right. Well, that was really interesting when I was in Jerusalem and we went to the wall. And when I was with my group, they told us, you know, you have to bring modest clothes for when you go to the wall. But one day we made an impromptu visit and we were all wearing shorts and t-shirts. And you go through this procedure where they have shin-length wrap skirts and shawls and head coverings and you have to get dressed appropriately before you can go through mm-hmm. those security tunnels to go to the wall. Now, it was a parallel. Doesn't matter. Um, as a parallel, it's you can't get into a church in Italy with shorts right. either. Exactly. Okay. So yeah. you know, it's, we're, not we're not the, the we're not the only ones that are crazy no. like this, um, yeah. but uh, you know maybe not as extreme. The Vatican, yeah. the Vatican right. right? Exactly. So we're not unfamiliar with that uh, that that process. Is there always Orthodox? The chief rabbinate is always Orthodox. Yes. Yes. The the sense is okay. This goes back to a, a medieval Turkish system called the millet system, which was very progressive for 1550. Um, The model was that each religious community could run its own affairs. So Jews could run Jewish affairs, Muslims could run Muslim affairs, Christians could run Christian affairs, which means Jews didn't have to go to an imam to get married. And Jews could run their own cemeteries. They don't need Muslim interference with that. So it's very progressive, again, for the 1550s. But today, where you have varieties of practice, not just the traditional practice, and where you have secular people and you have mixing across boundaries, the, the medieval system just doesn't work anymore. So uh, the dilemma is that by having a chief orthodox rabbinate, um, you are imposing orthodox standards on everyone to some extent. Now, it depends on the city. Some cities, malls are open on Shabbat. Restaurants are open on Shabbat. In some cities, they're closed. Depends on the city. So city government has a role to play here as well. Uh, but on the major issues of personal status, um, and synagogue and state separation, uh, that really um, has to do with uh, the Orthodox establishment and trying to fight it based on the civilian courts of law and, um, and challenging what's possible based on uh, a secular law. There is a secular law system. It isn't only rabbinic law there, but they interact in complicated ways. Now, it used to be the case that this was a major dividing line even on political fronts. But now, by and large, issues of war and peace and economy have been the breaking lines for major parties. So you have the Kadima party, which is a centrist party, uh, that basically tied with the Likud party, which is a more right-wing party in the last election. Uh, But because Likud had more natural allies than the other parties, it was easier for them to form a coalition and become the government. Netanyahu was the prime minister. the Israel Beitenu party is a Russian party, but it tends to be more hawkish on war and peace issues. Uh, their uh, head is a man named Avigdor Lieberman, who is both the uh, foreign minister, uh, the loudest mouth, and um, possibly under indictment for corruption um, <laughs> minister. Uh, the Labor Party is the historic left-wing party. Uh, it had been the dominant party, 40, 50 seats in every Knesset, going back historically. Now down to 13, it's collapsed, in part because of the change in the economy I mean, Israel now is not known for agriculture as much as high-tech and uh, technical innovation, um, Intel's uh, chip factories and so on. 
Um, so that's uh, that things have changed in Israel. So the Labour Party is uh, certainly on hard times. Uh, the Shas Party is an Orthodox party, but it's a Sephardic Orthodox party uh, that claims to represent Sephardic interests, uh, even though not all Sephardic Jews are ultra-Orthodox. Some of them are in that more traditional, religious or traditional, not very religious category. United Torah Judaism is one of the ultra-Orthodox parties um, and uh, represents their interests, um, including, most importantly, getting money for their schools. Because, in fact, there are three Jewish school systems in Israel. There are the state secular schools, there are the state religious schools, and then there are the ultra-Orthodox private schools that, for whom the state religious schools aren't religious enough, and, but they still get government money in part because of coalition governments and their deal is we'll support your government on you know whatever else you want to do as long as we get money for our schools okay uh the united arab list uh, is trying to represent the arab population but of course other some other parties do appeal for arab votes the labor party historically has tried to appeal for arab votes um the hadash party which is the israeli communist party uh, appeals for both jewish and uh, arab votes uh Meretz, which was the former left-wing party, at one time had, uh, I think, 11 or 12 seats in a previous Knesset. Uh, today is down to three. Um, and Balad is another Arab party uh, that represents their perspective. So um, you can see, and uh, I think National Union is a settler, uh, uh, right-wing religious settler party. So you can see in a parliamentary system, you've got this split of gazillions of parties. You notice I, I listed at the bottom 21 other parties that got enough signatures to show up on the ballot. They didn't all get enough seats. You know, you have to have a certain number of seats to, uh, votes to get a seat. You have to pass a threshold. But there are things like the Green Leaf Party, which is in favor of legalizing marijuana. My favorite is the Rights of Man and the Family Party, which is, I guess, disgruntled, divorced uh, dads. Um, there's, uh, there is a Green Party also, separate from the Green Leaf Party. Uh, so, anyways, uh, it's very complicated. Uh, but, you know, again, why should there only be one or two parties in a Jewish uh, democracy? Now, the question for us in learning how to study Israel or exploring how we study Israel in our Sunday school is what do we do with all this information, this complicated picture, some of the things we connect with very strongly, some of the things we would object to very strongly, and how do we build a sense of affinity yet critical disengagement as we do with Jewish tradition as well. We want them to know Bible stories but not believe their gospel, so to speak. Okay. So there are a couple ways you can evaluate whether Israel was a success or not. Evaluate its initial goals, and did it meet them? Is there a Jewish state? Yes. Is it a secular state? Mm, mostly. Um, is it safe and secure? Mm, mostly. Um, is it, uh, has it improved uh, Jewish standard of living, uh, from living under oppression to living under freedom? Mm, mostly. Um, but again, you know, you can give it a grade. You don't have to be pass or fail. You can also evaluate success in terms of advancement toward your objectives. Have you moved in the right direction? Are you better than you were? And you can also redefine what it means to be successful. Maybe the theory was, this would be a good idea. And we tried it, and it flopped. We thought we'd build our, our economy on agriculture. Well, OK. <laughs> not diversified enough, and just not what you're going to do to be successful. Uh, as a nation state, you need to diversify, you need some uh, more industry, more development, and so on. So that's what they did. And, uh, and so they redefined what success meant. Now, when do you evaluate your success? Israel is only 63 years old. By comparison, the United States at 70 years old was a failure because it was in the middle of a massive, destructive civil war that the Constitution had failed to keep these states united. And they were fighting each other to the death. So you were evaluating if the United States' success at 70, you know, would have been very different. So let's look at some of the failures and some of the successes. Failures. Israel wanted to create a nation that knew its past but had left it behind. But all too often, some Israelis would say we're Israeli but not Jewish. They don't know as much about Jewish tradition. They don't feel an affinity to Judaism broadly. They just feel like they're Israeli citizens. And the holidays they celebrate happen to be this, but they don't feel a connection to Jewish religious tradition. They don't want to know about it. They're indifferent. And some people have tried to address this. There are now these things called secular yeshivas and institutions of adult Jewish learning and cultural programming 
where people are exploring these texts they've never studied before in a new way to try to uh, find out what they can learn from them. The split, split between the religious and the secular. The goal was one Israeli state. In fact, the founding father, David Ben-Gurion, imagined that the ultra-Orthodox would just sort of fade away and wither away. Uh, didn't work out that way. Um, and so the battle between the two of them has been a problem. I mentioned the agricultural economy. I mean, the irony is Israel is at least as famous today for intel and trying to develop an electric car as it is for the kibbutz. Um, the split between rich and poor. It was a socialist model economy initially. You wanted to have everyone, you know, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. I mean, that's the model, right? You have a universal healthcare system there uh, that even covers fertility treatments. Um, but the split between rich and poor, as the standard has risen, also the split has exacerbated. There are billionaires in Israel, and there are there's grinding poverty there too. Um, the integration of the Arab minority has been challenging. Uh, first of all, the Arabs aren't used to being a minority in their past. Muslim uh, rule tended to be the rule and not the exception. They were not the minority. Uh, and Arabs in particular, living in Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Lebanon, Egypt, any of those countries, they were the ruling power. They were the caliph. They were the, uh, the, the uh, emir or the, uh, the prince. Um, so living as a minority under what historically had been a subordinate minority of the Jews, that was a major shift. Um, and in particular, integrating them into Israeli society has been challenging. But maybe that's inevitable. You've defined the state as a Jewish state. And the dominant ethnic group, 80%, is Jewish. On the flag is a Jewish star. So how integrated can you be? You have three national languages, but one of these three is not like the other in terms of its emphasis in the general school system. So, OK. Um, and finally, of course, the goal was to have a state that was secure. As Herzl said in the, in the Jewish state, we'll die peacefully in our own homes. Well, they've tried land for peace, and sometimes it's worked, and sometimes it hasn't. Uh, in Egypt, they exchanged the Sinai Peninsula back in exchange for a peace treaty that has gone hot and cold. It's a little colder now. I don't imagine it's going to go away anytime soon. Um, they've also tried that in Lebanon. It didn't work very well uh, in their unilateral withdrawal from southern Lebanon. Uh, they have a universal draft that is Again, concentrated on the secular population, but includes men and women. Um, but again, the ultra-Orthodox don't serve, the Arabs don't serve, and that could be a problem. And their ideal was never a militaristic ideal. It's almost a shanda, a scandal, that one of Israel's major exports is weapons technology and counterterrorism expertise and policing. Police. I mean, you know, it's sad, but it's a, a skill they've had to acquire. Um, and of course, the issue of ongoing issue of terrorism, I mean, there was just some incidents uh, earlier uh, last night and today um, with uh, protests in Lebanon and Syria and in, the, uh, in Gaza that are then spilling over into Israel proper and some violence back and forth. So, um, you know, what is the appropriate response to terrorism? Well, we're still working that out. Um, and Israel's been trying for a lot longer. But it's not all doom and gloom. I mean, there are real successes to, to hang your hat on. We created a Jewish state. The major symbols of the Jewish state are a menorah and a Jewish star. The language they speak is Hebrew. The government is a Jewish government that, for its fits and starts, is attempting to balance an attachment to the Jewish people and a secular democratic ideal. It's a refuge for world Jewry. You know, that messianic model of ingathering the exiles is reality there. It's a melting pot of all different kinds of Jews. It's a demonstration of the diversity and creativity of Jewish culture. So you get um, Israelis from uh, Ethiopia, singing in choirs with Jews from Morocco. And it, it really is a beautiful uh, mixing of uh, cultures. And modern secular Jewish culture in Hebrew is inspirational for us, because it's drawing on tradition. It's quoting the Bible and liturgy, but doing it for secular purposes to be inspirational. We just sang at a bar mitzvah yesterday a song called Yihyeh Tov, It Will Be OK, um, that draws on that kind of language uh, of beating swords into plowshares and um, uh, the, the, the winter is over and past. This is the line from the Song of Songs. So he's quoting these texts in a modern song that's, uh, that's a beautiful piece in its own right. Um, the, uh, the state of Israel has become a center for diaspora inspiration. Again, sometimes positive, sometimes challenging today, but uh, certainly a sense of ego that's healthy, a sense of uh, Jewish self-confidence has been bolstered by the existence and success of the state of Israel. And all of these successes have taken place despite all of the hostility and danger that Israel has faced. I mean, it is amazing to have become a top 40 world economy having to spend so much of your GDP 
uh, security defense and worried about terrorist attacks against school buses and everything else that happens. So that's a snapshot of Israel in an hour. Um, and our students, as they study it, are exploring both the successes and the challenges. You know, we want them to know the top five great things that Israel has done and does, but we also want them to know, here's why people question it. Here's why you need to make your own decisions. We want to accommodate both the APAC Jew and the J Street Jew, um, and even those who question the idea of a Jewish state. After all, in America, it's not a Christian state, as much as some would claim it. It's not a WASP state anymore, as much as some are regretting that. Uh, we are really a non-ethnic, non-privileged democracy. Israel's not the only one. In Germany, the Turks aren't citizens automatically because they're not ethnically German. In Lithuania, they privilege Lithuanian language and not just Russian, even though there are lots of Russians living there. It's not unique to have an ethnic state. So Israel shouldn't be subject to additional criticism. But if you don't like an ethnic state, then you don't like an ethnic state. And so you can work with it. In the end, though, we connect to Israel because we connect to the Jewish people. And Israel is built on the principle of Jewish peoplehood, which we've been saying for a long time. It's not just a religion. It's not a race. It's an ethnic identity with our people. It's a Jewish family. And so that sense of a connection is a core part of who we are, and that's the root of our connection to Israel. This podcast was recorded and produced by Ken Burke on behalf of Rabbi Shalom and Kol Hadash in conjunction with Repatriation Studios. I'm Ken Burke, and thank you for listening.